Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we continue our in-depth conversations about race and racism. We're talking to Judge Monet Scott, the first woman and the first black judge of the housing court in the Cleveland Municipal Court. Judge Scott's diverse legal career spans over two decades, and it includes civil litigation, family law, criminal prosecution, and work as a defense attorney. She also served as an assistant prosecutor with the city of Cleveland, as well as a Cuyahoga County assistant prosecuting attorney. Joining us for this series also is our co-host, Judge Gail Williams Byers of South Euclid Municipal Court. She was the first black woman judge of her court as well. The two black female judges talk about perceived racism in local media against black females in public office. Judges, I want to talk about race and media today and and let's start off on a national level we we see the national press corps covering individual incidents uh, the most recent being the the George Floyd incident and the media had covered all the demonstrations and the aftermath afterward but it seems to me that the media doesn't spend a whole lot of time looking at what caused these incidents. Uh, am, am I off base in my perception? Um, I don't think that you're off base at all, Tom. I think that what we've shared in the past is that there's great focus on what we call the shiny object, which is frequently portrayed as the end result, the protests, the shouting, the um, gatherings, even the the multi-ethnic camaraderie that has been gathered as a force to perhaps move conversations. But what I think is lost is how we got to where we are. And all of the the apparatus that is in place, every part of the apparatus that's in place that has occasioned this moment in time. And by that, I mean, there's been little 
limited, if any, conversation beyond just policing and now the rallying cry of defund the police. There's been little conversation about the role of courts, of mayors, of city councils, prosecutors, and even defense attorneys, and all of these, again, all of these players that go into creating this system that helped to play a role in what we are seeing play out in front of our very eyes on television. And that is a very important conversation to have. And not only is it a conversation to have, it's an important part to understand why this is unfolding the way that it is. The the emotion and the feeling and the response that we're seeing isn't done in a vacuum, but rather it's part of a greater system that needs to be appreciated and understood. I think it all starts with the media. You know, we get the the word blast that um, some, a black man has been killed. And we instantly know, and by we, I mean, you know, African-Americans or black Americans instantly know that we we prepare, we start bracing ourselves because we know he's going to be criminalized. No matter what he did or didn't do, he's instantly going to be criminalized through the media. Um, we, we're going to know what he did in the past, what he failed to do, if he would have did this. And it is exhausting to our soul. You, you will never find out until weeks later, maybe a month or two later, um, what the officer, the officer's history. And, and a lot of these officers possibly have criminal histories of, of bad histories of being police officers, whether they have mountains of complaints, um, you know, whether they have had um, lethal force um, shootings before or brutality complaints before. You know, we never see those things. And, and so we walk in trauma because of what's been perpetuated through the media. And so it is a recycle. So I say it's brutality, murder, protest, reset, repeat over and over again. It's like a cycle. And, you know, it, it's through the help of the media. And so when we go into these protests this time and people co-opt the Black Lives Matter protests by setting things on fire, no one got to see that a lot of these fires that were set to police cars and to buildings were not by um, Blacks. Did they break windows? Did they do a lot of the other stuff? Sure, but a lot of the people that you end up getting arrested were not um, of the Black Lives Matters protest. So you know, it started off violence, fires, and, and so why was that? Because now it's just like, oh, it's going to be a peaceful protest. It was always peaceful. So it was co-op, but it was also branded as being violent. And so you have to say, what part did media play in that? And what part does media continue to play in that? I've got a, I've got a question, and it may be a bit convoluted, so forgive me, but uh, let me tried to jump in here. It, it seems that the media always gets exercised about anger. They, they forget the anger or they, they highlight the anger that they're seeing 
from protesters or the black community in various ways. But they never report the reasons for that anger. So that anger always seems to be exaggerated as opposed to being justifiable anger. Uh, do I have that right? Or am I mistaken with that? Oh, most certainly. But remember, um, from the Black perspective, when it comes to the media, anger sells. Anger improves ratings. Anger causes boosts in you know, the sale of newspapers or um, advertisements. And the rationale, the reasoning, the logic, the logic is boring. The logic is unnecessary. The logic elongates a story that's unnecessary in the view of the media. And in fact, quite frankly, the perception for most Blacks is that we're not entitled to a rationale. We're not entitled to have a a reason. Uh, we're we're not entitled to even the emotion of anger. And so, when we are portrayed in what is often depicted as, for some, and largely the media, um, and which, by the way, is dominated by whites as our, to them, our natural barbaric state, it is, well, they're acting just the way we expected them to. And so we're never depicted, we're, well, we're infrequently depicted as calm and rational. Um, and it's just like um, Judge Scott said, you know, when our peaceful protests are co-opted, we nonetheless get blamed for the erratic, irrational, violent behavior. Why? Because that's the natural expectation of us. And But even were we to respond in the natural way that anyone else, particularly our white counterparts, were they treated and subjected to the inhumane, brutal, immoral mistreatment that Blacks have been subjected to for centuries, the expectation is still that we have no right to be angry, no right to respond. There is no rationale under the sun that is good enough to provide an explanation for this behavior and that we are still nonetheless barbaric. And the media absolutely provides the narrative for that and the space and the barrels full of ink to continue that narrative, to continue that storyline. And they have masterfully woven that and continue to. And they paint that mural and that, that picture over and over and over again. You, you know, and then I have to just say, is the, it, optics is everything. You, you can't just keeps narrating that these are riots. This is a rebellion. You know, um, and when we look through history, it's a difference between riots and rebellion. So when you say Boston Tea Party, was that a riot or was that a rebellion? I mean, 
it's a difference. And so with with this movement, it's it's a totally different um, movement compared to the ones in the past. And it is going to be it's going to be prolonged because now it's, it's happening more strategically. And then more people are joining this because, you know, it's coming down to enough is enough. And when you see how, you know, the response is to these protests, enough is enough. You know, you can't say these group of people have a First Amendment right and then these group of people don't have a First Amendment right. You know, the media portrays um, individuals standing on the stairs, steps of the state capitals with weapons and screaming at the deputy sheriffs and they get to do that, right? They don't get responded with tear gas and rubber bullets, and, and the legislators don't feel comfortable going to work, you know, they get treated humanely. And then when Black Lives Matter protesters step on the stairways of the Justice Center, they instantly start peacefully without weapons, they instantly start firing tear gas. And for why? And you have number 45 telling people to, you know, these are really good people, the governor should yield to them. And then we are labeled thugs and looters and rioters and law and order will be put in place. Uh, you can't have it both ways. You can't give First Amendment rights to some and, and not to others. I, I think the term low life was tossed in there as, as well. <laughs> yes, yes. The media never kind of calls him out on it. And that's problematic. You know, they may mention it, but they never just compare the two. So you, le we're left to our own divisiveness, you know, de um, devices to say, hey, he gets to do this and, you know, they get to do this and we do this peacefully and we're, we're caught all kind of things. We're labeled all kind of things. We're stereotyped all kind of ways. You want us to be peaceful? Well, Kaepernick did it peacefully and no one accepted it. No one. So when we mount up in large numbers and march through the streets and disrupt traffic, well, that's low life. How dare we disrupt people's traffic patterns and routines? So, you know, the, I just think the media just plays into it. And so you don't see the protesters still going on, but you don't see it as much because, you know, it's not any fires and it's not any... It's not it's not sexy anymore because you don't see the violence. You just see the peacefulness around it and the demands. And so it'll fizz out on TV, but we'll still fight. So I've been observing this and and this is just anecdotal. This is certainly not a, a research study. But when a demonstration is predominantly black or peop other people of color, uh, it, depending on the situation. The To pick up on what Judge Scott said, it's called a riot. Uh, whether it's peaceful or not, it's called a riot. We've heard that so many times from the media that this time we've had peaceful demonstrations, peaceful demonstrations. The fact is that also they, in the next breath, say, these are not just all black people de demonstrating. These Look at the rainbow of people here 
and therefore they're peaceful. It's like black equals riot, mixed race equals peaceful. And and that's just uh, I'm not sure the the right way to termin uh, terminology to use the right terminology to use here. Well, let me help you. That's called racism. Um, because what it clearly connotes is even when blacks congregate under the white banner and definition of peaceful protesting. It is the mere idea that Blacks have congregated to voice displeasure about anything that whites may have done in offense to Blacks that is the riotous behavior. Now, so as not to offend fellow whites, whenever that same congregation is now mixed with other whites and or other individuals from other ethnicities, well, we can now not uh, disparage with the same language because now we would perhaps risk offending fellow whites. And because now it's so representative of so many others, perhaps it's not a riot because well, they're not that bad. Because remember, the people that are labeling, the people that are labeling are also white. Remember I said before that the media is dominated, not by blacks, but by whites. And it's only when you can start reflecting and seeing yourself that you can actually start connecting. And so if the entire group of those engaged in peaceful protests are a group of people with whom you cannot connect with. It is very easy to assign a label to them that you would not otherwise assign to yourself, i.e. rioters. I don't see myself in that crowd and they just complaining about us. I don't really like the complaint about us. So I don't care that they're not doing anything that I would otherwise consider not wrong, but I still just consider it riotous behavior. Why? Because it's just a bunch of them getting together, complaining about us. Now, when that same group now includes some people that look like me and some other people, oh, well then I don't, I now see myself reflected in that crowd. And I still say, well, oh, they're not really doing anything. So now all of a sudden it's, the terminology changes. It's a peaceful protest because I've softened the blow. I now see myself reflected and I see somebody that could be my niece or my nephew or my cousin or my aunt or my neighbor or somebody that I can relate to. And maybe it's subconscious, but it absolutely happens. It absolutely happens. And language matters. Obviously, labels matter. You know, I, th I think, you know, Martin Luther King said it best when he said a riot is the language of the unheard. And so I don't want to get so hung up on semantics of riot versus peaceful protest because we have every right to be angry. We have every right. When everybody saw 
what happened to George Floyd, and I couldn't watch it, right? You know, I this was the day that I was at work from, I think I was there from 9 o'clock until 6.30 p.m., working on an administrative order, just trying to get a lot of stuff up and running for, you know, the opening of the building. And I got a phone call from a friend as I was heading home and and they were just kind of distraught and just said, you know, they told me what was happening. And I was just like, you know, it's so heartbreaking. Just the first thing out of your mouth is not another one. Because it seems as though we had, we were just dealing with Ahmaud Atterbury out of, um, with Georgia, very familiar with the area, very racist area. And so we hadn't even come up from air for air from that one to have another one that was even more egregious um, hit the news. But when I did start seeing just the photos of him being handcuffed, and I can't to this day you know, I refuse to hear the him saying I can't breathe, him calling for his mother. You, it's heartbreaking because I'm the mother of a son. I'm a mother of a daughter. You know, my father, my brothers, my uncles, nephews. It's, 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 I don't think people really truly get the trauma we walk in every day. And so then to have to deal with media, stereotypes, our work environment, you know, the fear of what happened when our kids go outside, especially our sons. My son is 17. He's 6'1", the, the sweetest kid you'll ever meet, you know, but no one sees that. And so we have to send our children out with a definition behind him. He's never gotten to a fight. He's never used a bad word. He's never did anything bad. He's a great student at a private school, a leader in his community, would give the shirt off his back. I shouldn't have to explain my child away to to make you say his life matters. You know, and so how do, it comes down to how do we fight the media? We can't, it's almost impossible because it impacts our everyday from social media platforms to the news, to television, to entertainment. How do we combat that? Because it's ingrained in us from the moment we start watching things and letting and letting it seep in. Let me, you talked about semantics and, and words and uh, how words matter. Both of you have said that. Uh, media oftentimes goes for the shorthand version of everything. Uh, And one of the terms that has come out of this that has become a political hot button is defund the police. Uh, That's a short catchphrase that's easy for media to use in the scroll across the bottom of the screen or in a headline, but it also is a political punchline then for uh, President Trump and and others uh, saying, look, these people want to defund the police. They they want back to anarchy. You're in danger. Uh, These people, uh, again, to to emphasize, are, are trying to take away your rights and they just want lawlessness. Uh, 
Talk about how that term has been misused and undefined by media, causing this this world to be able to put a bad connotation on that term. Can I can I say something about that? Sure. So let me let me just kind of clarify about what's going on in, in a generational a generational gap. So I, I think um, Judge Byers will agree. I'm from Generation X, so we're the the generation that came. We, I believe in high school we were switching over from typewriters to computers. We're the generation that hip hop came was introduced. We're the generation where Coke couldn't make up their mind. Coca-Cola couldn't make up their mind about the recipe. Um, <laughs> look, um, we're the generation of the lucky kids. But my teenagers are Generation Z. So they are the K-pop stands. They are the um, TikTokers. Um, and so they're the one that kind of disrupt um, Trump's rally in Tulsa. They're the ones that um, disrupted the White Lives Matter um, or Whiteout Wednesday that was trying to trump the Blackout Tuesday with the extremists. And so they're the undertone of defunding the police, right? Um, but it was really, it's two words that's being used. It is one portion, some don't need, one half wants to dismantle the police. And those police forces are so egregious and so corrupt and just so embedded with just no amount of redoing policy training is ever going to make this police um, department functional. So they just need to, as my daughter said, burn it all down and rebuild it. Um, the other one is defunded because so many, so much of the funds, tax dollars have went into training the police, um, giving them um, better equipment, um, just taking resources from education and social services and putting it into the police to pay for overtime, to pay for, um, you know, more, more bulletproof vests, more equipment, more cameras that we know that a lot of times they don't even use. They turn their body cameras off. And, and so we want to, when they say defund, they're saying, hey, that money that you social services, to cut back on all the resources that are in the schools, to cut back on the resources that are in the community. What about you take that money back and put it back into the community? But the when they say dismantle the police, they're not saying get rid of the police. What they're saying is this is just not working. The way you have it set up, it's not working. It's not working for the community. It's not working for the city. And when you dig deep enough there's some serious racial issues inside the police department. You know, even here in Cleveland, as quiet as it's kept, you can't have two unions. You have the Black Shield, which is the Black Union, and then you have CPPA. And something is wrong with that. So you have to say, what's going on? Do we need to dis dis um, defund it or do we need to dismantle it? I mean, I can't be in it one way or the other, but you have to listen to the generation that's coming up, you know, the generation that's voting, the generation that came through school with the mass shooting that specifically said, if you won't protect us, then we'll replace you and we'll protect us. And that's what you see. That's what you see what's going on. And I think everybody forgot that this was the generation 
that um, endured the mass shooting in the high school and they asked for help and no one sent it. They said, we send you our thoughts and prayers. And they said, we don't want it. And if I can jump in, Judge, I, I want to just add one thought to that, which I wholeheartedly agree and understand. And I think one thing also to add is this is a generation that is thinking outside of the box. And when they're, I believe when they're also saying defund the police, they're also requiring that elected officials, especially on the local level, begin to rethink how safety forces in local communities are used to keep communities safe. They're requiring that you think about how you're dispatching safety forces to respond. Not every call requires someone to show up with a gun. Not every situation requires the response of several SWAT vehicles or several police cruisers. That's not the appropriate response, especially in communities that already feel like they're over policed. And so part of that idea of defunding is not so much as it definitely requires a reallocation of funds and says, instead of sending a police officer that is armed to the hilt, why can't you send somebody that has a background in social work and de-escalation? Why can't you send someone who has an ability to respond to this issue that doesn't need to come with guns drawn? Because quite frankly, we're pretty sick of being policed in this manner. And we don't think that our dollars need to continue to fund a system that's not working for us. And so we're demanding that you take another look at how you're keeping us safe, not how you're policing us, but how you are actually responding to the safety needs of these communities. And traditionally, what was happening is you would take large chunks of city budgets and you just keep shoving them into the police line item. Why? Because we naturally associated safety with police forces. How do we keep you safe? We just add more money to the police line item. That's their job. And so with this movement, this generation, this idea, I believe it's saying is that we demand that you rethink this concept and to move because this takes funding and this takes a commitment to doing it differently and that we absolutely demand that you do it differently. Some communities already have two, three, four different agencies policing them. They've got sheriffs, they've got local police departments, they've got perhaps college campus police departments. They've some geographic areas got several police departments already policing them. They figure they can't step out on their porch without having 
two or three police departments already in their community. So they feel over-policed already. And not every situation calls for that. What they want is a different approach to some of these smaller issues that don't require the fear of having a gun drawn in their face. See, now that's a, both of you have given reasonable, rational uh, uh, rationales for changing, dismantling, reconfiguring police departments. They don't fit under the media heading of defund police, but that's what people are hearing. And my point is, I think the media is doing a disservice by labeling it as such. Well, I think the media does what a lot of people do. They never ask. They they define for us because they never go and ask, what does this funding, um, defunding the police mean? What does dismantling the police mean? Um, and, and they never ask the people that initiated those words or those comments. They just went and asked. They listened to what Trump said, and then they ran with it. Oh, well, no, we can't have that. And, you know, as my daughter and my son look at the news, and every time we look at the world news, ABC, CBS, NBC, always at the end of the news, they they have, you know how they end with a story, a, a, a nice story at the end? A, a feel-good story. for the past two weeks, it's, ended with, it's a feel-good story that ended with an officer impacting a minority, I'm not even going to say a minority, a black person's life. And my daughter is yelling the entire time. That is so much propaganda going on. She said, I don't know why they keep doing this because that's not what we need. You know, if you're going to end with a feel good story, what about you talk about what defunding the police is and how that impacts the community or something like that? But she was like, that's a scam. That's propaganda. That's the media perpetuating, you know, that's their way of saying blue lives matter. She was like, so why do you watch this news? Well, I'm trying to, I mean, I know what's going <laughs> on. It's not like I'm not intelligent enough to process that. <laughs> but, you know, she gets so upset about it. And she was just like, you know, the media is so full of propaganda. And I'm like, okay, calm down, you know. But, you know, I always ask them, what are you doing about it? So, you know, it, it always comes down to a lot of people come into the community and think they know what we need and never ask us what we need. And so they want to come and define this movement. And, and, and so that you're absolutely right. It does such a huge disservice because it once again, perpetuates um, stereotypes and say, well, you know, um, they want to defund us. So fine. Uh, we're going to just walk away from it. And you see what's going on in Atlanta to this day um, this officer that ended up shooting Rayshawn Brooks, who has a horrible history of complaints. Um, they had, I think the officer has a blue, what is it called? A um, blue, blue sick out or the blue flu. So they've been, just officers just not coming to work. They're not showing up. I mean, it's just insubordination, complete insubordination. And so, What's com coming down to what that looks like to African-Americans or Blacks is saying, so if we, uh, you're mad because we won't allow you to keep killing us and, you know, because we're holding you accountable, you're mad. 
And so you're showing us that you're not taking kind to this. So you're going to just, you know, walk away from your job. So this was never about you being true officers and the good apple, you know, one bad apple spoils the bunch. It goes to our theory that you're all bad apples. Because if you're willing to stand behind his behavior or the officers that pull the kids out of their car and tase them, the um, spell house, which was one girl was from Spelman, the other one was from Morehouse who was driving home and they just yanked them out of the car and brutalized them, you know, um, and they got fired and charged for, with assault, six officers, um, you know. And so these things are happening in Atlanta and it just keeps perpetuating and so all of the officers are mad now. So everybody wants to just kind of walk off from the job. They don't want they don't want to leave their job because it's good pay. But they decide we're not going to show up, and we're not going to become we're not going to be officers. We're going to call off. So you know, and then they think they're being attacked because we're saying defund. You know, pull those resources out, and put them back into the community for other things. And it's a difference because they're not saying dismantle, but defund. And that's doable because I think it's one city that did it. Um, oh my gosh, I can't remember the city. They're the only city that did it and did it effectively because it was so corrupt and embedded with crime, corruption, and no amount of policy and restructuring was going to help it. And what I can say, Judge, is in instances where you have pushback because officers elect to stand together, and because Atlanta isn't the only place where we've seen officers respond um, in solidarity. Um, I believe there was um, another example in New York and Buffalo, specifically, um, where um, officers um, several officers elected to walk away from a particular task force after two or three of them had been um, reprimanded or released um, after um, the one gentleman um, had received a concussion and was hospitalized from falling backward and having the pooling blood um, on the sidewalk. I um, mean, I think uh, upwards about 50 or so officers walked away from that particular assignment shortly thereafter. Now, I don't think those officers were fired, but I think they all left that particular assignment. And so similarly here, what I would say is that what gets lost in the response is the immediate impact to the community. In Atlanta, just as in New York, just as in any town USA, I think there is no dispute that communities everywhere, everywhere want a sense of safety. They desire civility. They want to know that they are in peaceful environments. And I think there is also a broad sense of understanding that yes, there is a certain structure that is necessary to help ensure that that is maintained. And that is a civil compact. That is a social contract between the community and the 
enforcement agency that is sworn to do that job is similar to the contract that we as Americans have with this thing called America. The only way democracy works is because we, the people, have bought into it because we have agreed that this experiment, as long as we keep tinkering with it, is eventually going to perfect itself. And that's the same thing between communities, again, and these, these agencies that we've you know, agreed with. The breakdown comes into play when one side or the other doesn't hold up its end of the bargain. And no doubt in under this umbrella, there is clear distrust between communities and particularly black communities and the agencies that have been entrusted to protect them because the black communities feel, see, and know that in instance after instance after instance, these agencies have actually turned on them. And as opposed to protecting them, have now become their greatest nightmares. And so because of that, this social contract is torn asunder. It no longer exists. And that's why it has to be revisited. That's exactly why there needs to be a new construct. And when you completely walk away from your end of the bargain, not only are you not going to hold up your end of the bargain, you're just not going to show up for it. Well, not only have you abandoned every part of your responsibility, you've left that whole part of society unsafe. Remember, there's still, remember all of the elderly people in that community. Remember all of the young people in that community. Remember all of the disadvantaged people in that community, those who deeply and desperately, genuinely rely on those forces to show up every day and to ensure that those communities are safe and to abandon those responsibilities in mere solidarity because of the behavior of one or even a couple while the matters are pending. Because remember, those cases aren't even fully resolved and I can't speak to the efficacy of them. But just because the case is pending, you walk away. Only underscores how little you care about your agreement and your commitment to that community. And now you've left that community on their own. And so how much more respect are they supposed to have for you now? How much more are they supposed to be endeared to you now? When you do bother to show back up now with your gun and your holster and your badge, what are they supposed to think of you now? Because you just abandoned them. And you abandoned them for somebody else that had a gun and a holster. And while you were abandoning them, you left them on their own to figure it out on their own. And you didn't care how safe they were. You didn't care what they had to do in the meantime. You didn't care what they had to do to knit themselves together as a community to make sure that their neighbors were okay, that they were okay. Because mind you, when a place is not protected and it is 
perceived to be unsafe, then all kinds of other elements can be invited. And so you leave communities to their own devices. And again, if we are to all be in this together, then there is a certain responsibility that, yes, if you are under that agreement and under that contract with that community, then it's just like you said, Judge, you you have a responsibility to still show up to that community. And they walked off. And it's not just insubordination. It is absolute abandonment. You've abandoned some important elements of a community at an important time. And that should require a gut check. And if it doesn't, then okay. But that right there, that's inexcusable. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further, not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands. And this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud. To make it clear. Make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. I want to shift our conversation a bit, but it's still part of what both of you have just been talking about. You you are both black female judges, one in a uh, inner ring suburb of Cleveland, the other in Cleveland. Uh, the two of you have indicated to me that you have been targets of racism from the media in in if in nothing else in being treated differently than your white counterparts i i want to get into that a bit uh judge scott can can you sort of help us out with your story a bit sure um my uh, mine's began Probably um, with regards to media during this, my 2019 journey, just in the campaign arena, um, you know, it started with a phone call from the media from um, Cleveland.com. I received a call while working as a prosecutor in the foreclosure um, division. Um, It was a rule that all phone calls must go through our receptionist. Um, I got a direct phone call that was 
obviously transferred to my desk because I saw from the corner of my eyes the um, the glitch in my phone. And I saw the person's name, but that came up on my call ID and I knew it was, um, you know, I, you know, I'll say it because he wrote the article it was Mark Namick. And I thought that was kind of weird to call me at work. And, you know, I picked up the phone. He introduced himself. You know, I'm with um, Cleveland.com, Plain Dealer. And, you know, I wanted to ask you about your recent fundraiser kickoff for your campaign. And I just abruptly just stopped him and said, you know, how can you call me at work to talk about my campaign politics? I'm on, you know, county time, you know, good and well, I can't talk about anything during this time. So don't call me. Needless to say, I immediately hang up the phone because, you know, that's a violation that I could easily get a complaint filed against me. And so he was using it as a guise to say, hey, I just want to know who you are. What's your platform? What are you going to run on under? And over a course of three days, you know, I just felt like, you know, this must be something more to this because then he was kind of asked, where did you have this kickoff at this, this, um, your fundraiser? And, um, you know, it, it was hosted by my host committee. So all I had to do was basically just show up and, and introduce everybody came in and my treasurer collect any, any donations and leave. Well, he proceeded to tell me, no, you had it at a place that are pervasive, um, property tax evaders, you know, they have property that's been foreclosed on. They don't pay their property tax. How would I know that? You know, it was by a host committee. Um, I had nothing to do with where they chose to have this party. Um, they asked, could they host something for me? I just asked that they have a place that had vegan and vegetarian options. And they chose the place. It was a sushi place. And they he proceeded to tell me, well, I'm going to run this story. And it's pretty much going to be about a prosecutor who had that's running for housing court that had their her campaign kickoff um, at a place that um, don't pay their property tax. And I said, that has nothing to do with housing court. So, you know, and I felt like he was using me as a black woman to elevate my opponent who was a white man. And it was nothing I could do. Nothing I could say, and no matter what I did, I was pretty much going to be drowned out and vilified. And nobody was held to a duty to do what he was trying to hold me to a duty to do was to investigate where I held any of my fundraisers. And nobody has to do this duty. No one who ever ran for office is obligated to do this duty, even those who run for housing court. So, and another judge who was also campaigning that they has her name across the building um, that I held my party at. <laughs> so I don't understand. I did not understand what was happening. And that particular judge is a white woman. What was happening to me? So that was one of the incident. And when I won the election, the first African-American, the first female that won the seat, um, they proceeded in the papers and on cleveland.com to just kind of give me a blurb that I won and they put his picture and they wrote a glowing article about, you know, his loss um, and what he did for housing court. So they even minimized my win 
the next morning. So targeted, targeted during the campaign, minimized the, the win. Uh, did it stop there? No. And then just last week, um, I they came back again. Well, nope. And so as I ascended to the bench, um, something happened with a um, councilman where um, he endorsed my opponent, who's a Republican. He was the endorsed Republican candidate, and I was the endorsed Democratic candidate. And a councilman who um, was an active councilman, um, who was also a delegate for the party, for the Democratic Party, an executive committee member, as a matter of fact, endorsed publicly my opponent, who's a Republican. Well, that's against the party's rules. And, um, you know, a complaint was filed. And so we had to have a hearing. He got um, suspended or expelled from the party for one rotation of, um, what is it called? One rotation of campaign. So when he runs for city council, he can't be endorsed by the party. And they, they, he continuously called Cleveland.com and had them run um, articles about how I got him kicked out of the party. And it was, I didn't get him kicked out of a party. You got yourself kicked out of a party because you can't do what the rule says you can't do. And, you know, he wouldn't endorse me, um, you know, and so for them to just kind of keep feeding into his rants um, as I ascended to the bench in this position, just played into the narrative of continuing to vilify me in my position. Then last week we talked about the court opening up for eviction. Um, as we go into this new road, no one has ever went through a pandemic. All the courts in Ohio were encouraged to go um, virtual and you know we're it's a fluid process and so they came in they interviewed you know what do we do when the media wants to sit in on these eviction hearings well you uh, you call and ask you file um a request to sit in on their hearings just like you do if it was public and we allow you to sit in we don't stop you from doing it but now we have to we have to send you the zoom link um, you can sit in, you can come in now, we're in the same courtroom, but you'll be looking at the back of a laptop computer. Um, but it's better for you to sit in on the Zoom link. So we'll ask you to go to your car and we'll email you the Zoom link and you can come in and sit in. You just have to give us a heads up. Well, after I interviewed, I sat there and answered his questions for 45 minutes and explained the entire process of evictions and how we send out summons and all of that. He tells me as he's wrapping up, well, this is pretty much going to be an article about how housing court um, don't, doesn't have any transparency and you're not allowing anyone to sit in on your hearings. So I was like, that's completely false and that's not even the case. I just sat here and told you about a process and that this is fluid and that how we're looking to you know, maybe even set up a YouTube channel or Facebook live to live stream it. So, but this is a, this was the second day of, you know, us opening back up eviction court or open back up housing court period. But he wrote an article. It was a horribly written article, I must say, but in the same breath, you know, he got to sit in on a hearing. He got the zoom link. He interviewed the judge in her chambers. And so where was the lack of transparency? 
it made no sense. But you know that that article was intentional. Once again, um, it, it goes to show how you know one it was for the third time a white male that was coming you know to attack me from cleveland.com so were were other courts or other judges praised by the same media for uh conducting virtual kinds of court actions oh absolutely absolutely um and everyone was their courts were open before my courts. They were conducting here. You have, it's 36 common pleas judges that deal with felony hearings um, that are in that building along with me. And it's 12 general division Cleveland Municipal Court judges who, of course, all opened up on June 1st. Mine's opened up on June 15th. And I must add that, yes, it is a First Amendment right to have access to um, judicial proceedings, but that is really embedded in criminal proceedings. Evictions are civil proceedings and that we really have a right as judges to kind of limit those proceedings when it comes to private matters. And I have to say that um, evictions are private, it's personal, and I have to kind of weigh that balance. So I had to even rethink um, Facebook live streaming those things because the way our courts were originally set up prior to COVID is that the podiums were really close to the bench so that those people sitting behind them couldn't hear those conversations being held with the magistrates because you're dealing with people's livelihoods. Let me talk about the environment here and Judge Byers, you can jump in as as well. Do you think that you're targeted because you're black judges or because you're black women judges? Uh, or do you think it's uh, the media does this on their own or they're just more susceptible to following up complaints from uh, white opponents of yours? Uh, try to uh, give me the environment in which this happens. Well, you know what, Judge, it's interesting that you put it that way, because I now that I scan my mind to think about it, um, certainly by comparison, the pool of Black females is larger than the pool of Black males. I don't know that I see Black males as, I don't see them highlighted as often as black females, and I certainly don't see them highlighted as negatively as I do black females. Um, there's a, a question that you asked Judge Scott, which was with regard to seeing other judges praised for similar behavior um, with regard to streaming. And I, I actually would objectively chime in on that by saying yes, because uh, one of my suburban white female colleagues, I happened to run across an article some just a few weeks ago that sought to praise her for holding her, her court virtually. And it talked about how innovative she was and how forward thinking she was and um, how she, her court, I believe her court had received a grant, but I'm not certain but it definitely sought to praise her for, for her work and her actions and, and taking her court virtual. 
in this pandemic environment. And as Judge Scott said, um, I'm going to venture to say that um, I don't know that there are any judges on the bench that have been there um, since the Spanish flu. And so this would be all of our first pandemic. So every judge, I think, is just trying to find their way through this very unique experience. But in that article I read about my white colleague, my white suburban female colleague, there was no mention whatsoever about transparency, access to the public. In fact, it wasn't critical at all. So I found it to be pretty shocking that someone like Jeff Scott would be criticized for not having transparency, but her white female suburban counterpart was only provided glowing um, reviews for uh, nearly identical behavior. Um, but I will also say to your second question, I genuinely believe that our um, that white detractors certainly easily can harness the ear of the media far faster than black electeds that are perceived to be in power um, that that do not toe the line, if you will, and that we easily become targets um, of the media and we become targets very frequently. So as either to limit our upward trajectory to sully reputations um, or to stymie growth. Judge Scott, you were going to say something, uh, and and we started off with Judge Byers. Uh, let me give you that opportunity. I just want to say one thing about this particular seat that I'm in. This is no doubt a very powerful seat, um, and so I knew that I would be a target in this seat um, simply because it's a seat traditionally held by a white man. So I feel like any time a black woman comes to occupy space traditionally held by white men, it is a position that you're going to continuously fight um, stereotypes. You're going to continuously fight. Um, it, it's going to be an upward battle. And that upward battle had always been, she doesn't know anything about housing. She doesn't know anything about um, the law. This is a specialized court. And, you know, at the end of the day, I kept saying, I, but I'm, a, I'm an attorney. I'm a licensed attorney. I've been a licensed attorney for, you know, 19 years. And the thing that set me apart is not only was I a licensed attorney, I was never just an administrator like my two predecessors. I was a litigator. So I knew a lot of the technical things about motion filings, pleas, and um, those, those things you need to... Um, not be in the court of appeals um, or have appeals filed by defense attorneys as, you, as they stand before the bench. So, and how how things should be wrapped up when you're accepting pleas, how um, paperwork should be presented to the court, how to hold all the attorneys that stand before the bench accountable so that you don't go across the street to the 8th District Court of Appeals. Um, and, and that's what made me unique and different. And, and no one saw that. No one saw that worth. And I am very community oriented, right? Because I lived in the heartbeat of the community that was heavily impacted by foreclosure 
and all the um, dilapidated properties and all the vacant homes. And I knew that impact that they were feeling and I was hearing the voices and concerns and I was really paying attention. So, you know, it was, it was not politicians that got me this seat. It was the voters and that's who I'm beholden to the voters. And that disturbed a lot of people. Because uh, some people get to where they are through the helps of a lot of politicians. And when you get to your position by being simply elected and no one sees you coming, it disrupts something in the system. Because no one can gauge you. And that was just from a lot of work with me, just talking and listening and just developing a platform that was a platform that was needed. Night court, which is needed, which, you know, I got that from Judge Byers. You know, how do we not even think about going into an evening court when a lot of people don't have time off of pay? So it was things that people didn't want to really do, but needed to be done. And the voters wanted, wanted it to be done. So it's still a target on my back. And so it's, it's going to be even tighter because now we're going through a pandemic. And so now they're thinking I'm going to hide my cars even more when I'm being even more transparent because my thing is to put everything out on our web page to make it accessible, to have more panel discussions, to push all information out, but also to hold everybody accountable. And Tom, can I just say one thing? And I know we're going to, um, you're going to probably touch on this, but I just want to talk about the unreasonableness sometimes of the media, because if you can think about the consideration that we're six months into the year, we've now been told by the CDC that we've been in a pandemic for the entire year, since January of this year. And Judge Scott has was actually sworn in in January. So for the life of her term, she's been in a pandemic. And in this time, though, she's now been held to a standard that is far and away higher than any of her predecessors. Um, and in addition to operating inside of a pandemic, and these are still standards that are greater than not only her predecessors, but now any of her, her contemporaries. And yet I, the media does not seem to see anything wrong with that and certainly doesn't see the bias and the racism inside of that because for them, this is all so natural because it is so amazingly covert. Let, let me ask two questions as we wrap it up here. Um, and the first, I think, can be pretty quick. Both of you came from the prosecutor's office uh, before you assumed your judgeships. Both of you elected judges, as all judges are, in Ohio. You didn't get this criticism as prosecutors, but you're now targets as you describe it, as judges. Is it because you now don't know your place and you're going up the chain uh, of, of judicial offices or you're going up the legal chain? It, 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 you know, to use the term that, that you and I've used, Gail, are, are you uppity now uh, <laughs> because you're, you're uh, judges and therefore targeted? 
I, you know, you ding, 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 you get a cigar. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's entirely possible. Um, but I think there's also another thing that um, Judge Scott and I share, even as being former prosecutors, which is um, in, in both instances, when we ran for our respective seats, neither of, I, neither of us enjoyed the support of our bosses. And so we ran independently. Now, there have been many former prosecutors that have ascended to the bench, black and white, who have um, done so with the support of the county prosecutor. And I think they do that and take with them sort of a level of unspoken white support. I won't say privilege for black folks, but I think that in those instances, you know, sometimes you, you have some, um, white powers that be that sort of understand that they may be experience a level of protectedness that others do not. Um, Judge Scott and I did not have that. I know for certain I did not. And therefore my experience has been, I don't know what that protectedness looks like because I did not have that. And I don't have that. And perhaps I have, you know, cut my teeth because of it, but, um, yeah, maybe I am uppity. I, oh, I definitely didn't have it. It's two things were counted against me. A, I'm not from here originally. And B, I was not Irish and I was going against an Irish person. So, um, you know, it was very difficult. Um, but it wasn't impossible because I know the sincerity that I took into this. And I did not... Um, take it lightly. I'm a hard worker. I'm an extrovert. I love people. So I had left the prosecutor's office and had become the Fair Housing Administrator for the city of Cleveland for five years. And that's where, because I wanted to kind of dabble into civil rights, kind of hit those those markers. And it gave me a, a sense of um just connecting with people and housing and just saw such a huge disconnect of what was going on, a, a missing component of um, people not knowing their rights around housing. And, you know, that allowed me to work closely with Judge Pianca um, and even going into his landlord trainings and, uh, and training people, the landlords about what not to do to violate their housing rights. So, you know, when I decided to run, I, I, and I tell everybody, if you came to my swearing-in ceremony, I had no desire to run for housing court. You know, I just, I, I didn't want to do it because I just kept saying it's just not a sexy judgeship. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't something I wanted to do. I wanted to go into just being a regular judge. I've always wanted to be a judge since I was in third grade. So that's, that's been my target since I became an attorney, a sworn attorney was to don a black, uh, the black robe, you know. Um, but when I ran for this seat, um, it was, I did not know the, 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 the headaches I was going to endure. Uh, my opponent, my first time running, where I, I only lost by under 400 votes with a third candidate in there, um, took me to, they filed a complaint. And, and I literally had to hire an attorney due to the, the size of my fonts on my campaign material. Everybody 
does this. Everybody has mixed match font sizes. So, you know, I had to go down to Columbus, retain an attorney for $3,000. It was exhausting. Answer this complaint um, for the plain dealer endorsement. They um, did a public information record request and pulled my personnel records um, and, and submitted them to the um, panel that was doing the endorsement. You know, um, when I went before judge for yourself, I, they asked me nothing regarding this seat. And so it was just so many um, biases going on across the board that I knew in 2019 I was not going to subscribe to any of it. I was going to do everything my way. I just wasn't going to submit to any kind of endorsement. I wasn't going to submit to any kind of interviews that I didn't want to do. I, I just was going to be very protective of my um, mental, my, my emotions and my, my mental stability because I endured a lot in 2017 that I just wasn't going to subject myself to in 2019 because, you know, everybody showed me who they were and I believed them. Okay, I've got one last question for both of you. If you could try to give me a paragraph. Uh, we've been talking about media on a national level and on a regional and, and local uh, level. If you could give advice to reporters and editors about how they can change their racial bias, if not covert racism. What advice would you give them in a paragraph? Judge Gale, we're going to start with you. I would say um, to first broaden your horizons, dig deeper. Shiny objects are exactly what they are, shiny objects. But um, Similar to what we saw in The Wizard of Oz when that one scene of Dorothy standing looking at the wizard and there's the curtain in the back and they say, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. I would say the exact opposite. Pay attention to the man behind the curtain. Do not ignore it because that's where the important stuff is. Um, in fact, I realize that talking points is what boosts ratings and what may sell papers. But it's the exact thing that also fuels covert and overt racism because it's like systematically failing to identify the real issues. And that's what's offensive. Also, um, I would say engage in real conversations with real people. And what you expect from us, expect from everyone else. What you do to us, show us that you will do to and with everyone else. And do not allow yourself to be the water carrier for any old person just to target someone else. Be willing to check yourself and say, you know what? Am I targeting someone just because somebody else asked me to? 
And what is the real purpose of that? And if as a journalist, that's what you are doing or have been willing to do, stop it because you are not doing your profession any good. All right, Judge Scott, we're going to give you the last word. You know, I just would say, I think old school journalism just does not exist anymore. Um, I think everybody comes in with ulterior motives. So I ask that you go back to old school journalism, um, the Barbara Walters, um, um, the days where you didn't come in with intentions to, I'm just going back to my last, interview with the um, journalist that came in. He already knew he was going to interview a First Amendment attorney. And so he already knew what his title of his article was going to be. So if you knew what all that was going to be, what was the point? You wasn't coming in with any kind of neutrality. So you were coming in with covert and overt biases and racist views. So you know, and that's how I have just started perceiving journalism. And so it's never going to be, to me, it's hard to just kind of have a cohesive kind of working environment. You need to get information out to the community. I need for you to get com information out to the community. But how do we work together to make sure that it's effective and it's honest when we have somebody out here saying everything is fake news? And then how do we kind of not perpetuate the ideology that media is fake when they are doing it and we've been victims of it? So we have to strike a balance. I know, you know, things are shiny. And as, as the judge buyers have said, things are shiny and pretty and people want to click on those catchphrases because a lot of people don't read. They just look at the title. Um, but you know, it could have been something easy as, is there transparency in the housing court that allows people to click and say, you know, my my visit, you know, is um, not as fluid as it should be, but they're getting there. But that's not what was presented. So it has to be a balance of we're working through it. It's a pandemic. Um, let's be neutral in the whole process. If you do it to me, do it to everybody. That's all I ever asked for but that's not what we're getting. So, you know, we, we all have to counter fake news. Judge Byers, Judge Scott, thank you both very much for this discussion. Uh, I'm sure journalists and just average citizens alike will, will come away with a, a better understanding of, of your perspectives. And that's what this is all about. So thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Today, we've been talking with two black female judges, Judge Monet Scott and Judge Gail Williams Byers, about perceived racism in local media towards black females in public office. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. 
please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Blueberry, or at NPR One. Spectrum also was available through the NPR Podcast directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover in the future, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.